Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Today, we're featuring two important and stimulating conversations from two of our sister podcasts on the Provoke.fm network. We start with Jennifer Tesher, host of Emerge Everywhere, and her special guest, Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, who talks about her passion for financial inclusion, which began as a child in Argentina navigating the impacts of hyperinflation, and how financial stress is linked to physical health, productivity, and even GDP. In her role as the United Nations Secretary General's Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development, she champions access to affordable and safe financial services for communities around the world, especially underserved groups. Through close collaboration with public and private sector partners, her work has driven real progress for financial health around the globe. Then David Ryling, host of the Next Gen Banker podcast, speaks with Deloitte's chief futurist, Mike Bechtel. Mike makes predictions about the future based on current trends, but he says the future is translucent, neither fully clear nor fully opaque, and he thinks about the future with the perspective of a historian. He gives insights into what he feels will drive the technology of tomorrow, going beyond the screen, those increasingly small, black rectangles we've been staring into for the past decade and a half, and how leaders can balance the need of what's now, what's new, and what's next. The banker of the future needs to lead with need. Then they'll bring it all full circle, talking about AI for good and how technology can help drive financial health. My guest today... Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands is passionate about financial inclusion and financial health. Having grown up in Argentina, she saw the impact of hyperinflation on families and knew then that she wanted to do something about it. As the United Nations Secretary General's Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development, Her Majesty is a global voice on advancing access to affordable and safe financial services and she has made real inroads for financial health across the world through close collaboration with partners from both the public and private sectors. Your Majesty, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So as princess and then as queen of the Netherlands, you could have chosen numerous issues to champion, but you chose financial inclusion. Tell us why. Well, to begin with, at the age of 14, I decided I was going to study economics because um, in that time in Argentina, uh, things were not very well macroeconomically. I lived through hyperinflation and I could see how basically normal people were actually being, yeah, their economic lives were destroyed by it. And uh, so I had this idea that one day I'm going to become Minister of Finance and improve uh, people's people's lives. And uh, of course, by the time I actually got my degree and I'm being in banking and I said, well, you know, this is something 
I still want to do is help through investments, you know, help through, you know, through the household itself. So this whole thing about micro really interested me. So I started doing this whole microfinance, but of course we had a lot more than just microfinance, right? So, and that's how I ended up in the financial inclusion, because also I do think that the impact of it is actually enormous. It is, we know already it's not only pro-growth, so countries in in itself will have a higher GDP once you have a fully financially included population. But we also know it's pro-poor, which means that actually it reduces inequality. And that's something that is always really interesting very, very much. This whole issue of actually giving people the same type of possibilities um, economically for their lives is something that I'm really passionate about. And that really, really annoys me when, uh, you know, the possibilities are not there for people to grasp. And, you know, think about also the very big issues that we have, right? So food security, if a farmer doesn't have access to savings or access to insurance or access to credit, he cannot really increase the yields and actually produce all the food that we all need to this increasing population. Think about um, energy or climate change. If, uh, you know, in Africa we're seeing projects of people, you know, now with a mobile phone, they can actually buy every day with the same price and actually have this little jerry kind of kerosene. With that same money, they're now paying off a solar panel that is giving electricity for the whole family. And after three months, that piece of solar panels is a big, the biggest asset for that family. So climate change, I mean, we've seen after typhoon, uh, the typhoon in, in, in the Philippines, what that actually, these type of savings and insurance actually did for, for, for people. They could actually get out of this humongous shock much better. So um, these issues of actually decreasing inequality, smoothing consumption, uh, and giving people opportunities to make the best of their lives is something you know, really interesting. And that's the reason why. Well, your passion comes through so clearly. And you might not have become the finance minister, but in 2009, you were named the UN Secretary General Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development. Tell our listeners, what does this mean? What does that role entail? Basically, what I do is um, I, I try to advocate for financial inclusion. You know, uh, 10 years ago, I would say 12 years ago, nobody knew the word financial inclusion. I think by now, everybody knows what it is. And actually, even after COVID, that was actually very, very interesting, is that if there's any doubt that financial inclusion was important, COVID took that away because a lot of countries realized that if they actually had to give some kind of subsidy grant or help small businesses or, or women uh, during this whole pandemic, was they needed to have financial inclusion. So that really, the whole issue that we need financial inclusion is not really my job anymore. But what I do is twofold. First of all, I go to countries and I try together with all my partners, because I don't do this alone, we're trying to make it happen. 
And um, what do I mean by making it happen? We speak to the, you know, from the telecom regulatory, we speak to the central bank, we speak to the Minister of Finance, the President. And the whole issue is to get the job done on a regulatory perspective. But we also speak to the private sector there and say, you know, how can you actually improve the quality of your products, how you can actually sort of, you know, work together and cooperate, cooperate, for example, a band with a mobile uh, uh, network operator. And in that way, actually get the job done. So um, I'm extremely proud. We already have more than 50 uh, different national strategies, financial inclusion national strategies around the world. And we have seen, you know, more than 1.2 billion people that had more access to financial services from 2011 to 2017. And I know it's going to be more because the figures are not going to be coming by the end of this year. But we still have 1.7 million billion to go. So um, the work is still ongoing. But there is, a, I have to say that so much has been done. And I'm sure that after COVID, we're going to see huge increases as well. The other thing that I also do is I, I also talk about the, like the big issues around financial inclusion globally. So, for example, the whole issue of data. When I started this work, I didn't know how many people we needed to give financial inclusion to. I mean, was it 500 million? Was it 3 billion? So getting that data was a huge public good piece that I needed. And why is this important? Because with that, I can go to a country and say, yeah, listen, only 13% of the population is financially included. So there's a work that you need to do. Oh my God, 13%. Oh, so then they start to do that work. If I don't have that data, I can't really, you know, um, convince really people that they have to do this work. The other issues are all the standard setting uh, bodies. So, you know, they're mostly in Basel. Um, before that, they all looked at the financial stability of a financial sector. But, you know, but if the financial stability of a sector is very good, but it only improves 30% of the population, what does it work for, right? And, and so all these discussions were actually extremely good. And at the beginning, was like, you know, why should we care about that? But then they realized that they, they did actually care and it was important for them. So now, Financial inclusion is a very intrinsical part of their work as well. And, you know, defining issues, the outcomes about financial health. What is that? What is the best policies? Yeah. And they were talking about now the digital environment that is really helping us to do most of the financial inclusion right now. Okay, what are the dangers? What are the risks? What are the opportunities? Define them, uh, develop the knowledge, uh, try to disseminate that knowledge. I mean, for example, central bank digital currencies is a good, is a bad for, for financial inclusion. All these big discussions that, you know, I don't think that any one government of a central bank should be making by its own. We have to develop this body of knowledge globally. And that's what I also try to do. Got it. Well, I'm going to have you back to have a whole nother conversation about central bank digital currency, because <laughs> I'm also still trying to figure out whether I think it's good or bad for inclusion. But for another day, you have started talking in about financial health recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you created a financial health working group as part of the UN SGSA. And the mission of the group has been to build a new consensus and to drive action around financial health. So why the shift? Why the shift from financial health to financial financial inclusion, excuse me, to financial health? Well, because financial health is always what I wanted. 
but I need to have the rails done first. So if I kind of get to people that today we're speaking to the Minister of Foreign Affairs of South Africa, and she was saying to me, you know, what we realized during the COVID is that we put so much money into the system uh, to help businesses, etc., but we never, never reached the informal women. So therefore, we it's like they didn't exist. So they actually faced, of course, the biggest brunt of the whole pandemic. So this whole issue of financial health is the outcome. I mean, financial inclusion is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. I always wanted to actually go to the outcome, which is the development, which is that people have really good financial uh, lives. And what does it mean that? Because, you know, everybody had a different definition. So what I thought it was really important is to actually get a group of all the people already doing any work on financial health um, to mm-hmm. actually come up with a definition. It was like quite a tough job to do. And uh, so it's basically based on four issues. First of all, you have to have enough money to come up, you know, or at least make uh, front to your day-to-day finances. A second issue is you have to have resilience. So if there is an um, external shock that actually happens, you have to you know, have savings or insurance that would actually you know, help you through that moment you're not going to have any income and even make you bounce back better. And it has to be able to pursue or help you to pursue and achieve long-term goals. I mean, let's talk about pension, let's talk about being able to pay for college for your kids. And it has to, the fourth one is actually very important, is actually it, you have to feel secure and in control of your finances. And this is a very subjective issue, but um, I think it's a very important one because uh, the stress that actually financial unhealthy lives, uh, um, basically the amount of stress that people have through over-indebtedness or or not being secure about being able to pay the the, the college tuition of of a child is just so big that I think it's extremely important that we actually uh, measure that as well. And what is a very important issue is that this is not an issue only in developing countries. It's a huge issue in developed countries. Even in my country, the Netherlands, uh, we have, you know, 17 million uh, uh, inhabitants and we have 650,000 households that are over-indebted, that have problematic debts. That's a huge number. These are people that are really extremely stressed. And we know that what this financial stress does to people, we have some research that even says it can even curtail 13 points on your IQ. But that actually gives you a little bit of a, it just paralyzes people. So that's why I think the subjective and the, 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 the mental health part needs to be a part of it as well. And it has a huge effect, therefore, on your productivity. So therefore, you work and in your physical health. And I have to say that um, a lot of companies and, and, and have actually noticed that by actually addressing this issue, their, the productivity of the employees have actually increased tremendously and the loyalty to, of, of course, the company. But it's, it's um, I'm happy that we had this working group because we defined a definition. We also came up with a couple of indicators which should have been uh, collecting and um, and also a set of what you what should the public sector do and also what should the private sector do. 
Got it. So um, we were really honored to be able to participate in the working groups. And so there were, correct me uh, if I'm wrong, there were three work streams, right? A public sector work stream, a private sector work stream, and then a work stream around measurement. Um, and you just described what each of those groups were doing. You've talked a lot about um, the need for the government and the private sector to work together in order to make inclusion and now financial health um, a real possibility. And you've used your platform to convene um, CEOs, including the CEO Partnership for Economic Inclusion, and to really call on CEOs to get them involved. In fact, um, I think the way you and I first met several years ago was through Dan Schulman when you uh, held um, a small meeting uh, at PayPal on the West Coast of the United States. Talk a little bit about how companies and business leaders can be partnering with governments um, and NGOs to really move the needle here? What's the role that they should be playing? Well, I think that the private sector, on, on two roles, you know, the, the private sector can do, first of all, they have their own employees and customers. And certainly the companies are in the financial sector. They have also yes. even more important role to play than other employees also the customers with their products, they can actually move the needle on having a family uh, being, uh, you know, financially healthy or not, right? So uh, I think that would like to sort of dif differentiate, you know, one when it's your own employees and the other one's from your own customers. Uh, when it's your own employees, it's been, I mean, you, you've mentioned Dan Shulman and th their work in PayPal, but also Mastercard did a wonderful job. It's, first of all, is survey. What is the financial stress of my employees? So what Dan actually tried to use is disposable net income and also tried to sort of see who was actually having financial stress. And um, we have not yet decided what type of KPIs actually private sector should be doing, but we're trying to sort of get that information together, see what the best practices are. But I think you have to start doing it. First, we'll start with measuring. Measuring if your people actually have, uh, you know, debts, or not. And then you have to start the conversation. And uh, definitely the HR department is a, a wonderful place to start and see what are the policies that you as an employer can do to actually, you know, um, make face to whatever it is. Is it because they already are indebted? You know, could they actually have a coach that can actually help them, you know, rebalance and rebudget their lives, etc. Um, on the side of the uh, customer side, it's a little bit more complicated because I think that's where I think policymakers and, and, and the public and the private sector should actually be working a lot more together. Because then there is a cross between what regulators actually uh, have in mind when they approve a certain product by a certain financial sector. And what I would love, love to have is in the future that there is a conversation constantly about, you know, does this product really need to better financial lives? Yeah. And if, if, for example, a, the public sector said, listen, I would like, you know, the public to increase their savings by a good 20% is to sit together with the private sector. So, okay, how do we create default options that are leads to bigger uh, saving behavior. Um, if we talk about sort of insurance, the same story. I think there's a lot to be done to be working together in that respect. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about the possibility of regulators really supervising institutions on the basis of what's the outcome of the product and service that you're offering. You know, the other thing we have started to do work in though is to think about what other sectors have 
a role to play in the financial health of their customers. So for one would be healthcare, their patients. Um, and you, you spoke about the significant intersection between financial, physical, and mental health. And so we're now doing some work in the healthcare sector, um, not just about their employees, but about their patients. I think the other arena where we've done some work would be in higher ed with their students, uh, another place. So I, I, I have a little bit of a dream that you know someday most, maybe not all, but most sectors will see their way towards understanding the um, sort of role and responsibility that they have around the fin- broader financial health of you know the whole ecosystem. Well, I will tell you a story. So I'm doing this work here in the Netherlands as well. So one of the things that um, about five years ago, I started this uh, debt lab, uh, which is now trying to help people reduce uh, uh, the over-indebtedness in the Netherlands. And, and uh, I'm, um, you know, uh, helping them to expand around all the municipalities. Anyway, of course, the Dutch system is not the same as the US system. But one of the things that we realized is that um, the, we have to look at the early warnings when people start sort of, you know, developing the, you know, vicious circle of uh, financial and healthy lives. And the first early warning is when people stop paying the, the, the premium for the health insurance here in the Netherlands. Right. Because they know that it really becomes sick. People, you know, the doctor would always pick up the phone. You know, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, having a debt with the insurance company. But they will not stop, you know, paying the electricity bill because the next day they will cut it, right? Oh, but wow. they will not cut, cut your you know, health system. So that's the hint. And that's why. We also need the health insurance companies with us to start us giving the early warning. So the moment a family starts sort of delaying their payments, we should be immediately there. And actually, what's going wrong? Can we help you? Uh, you know, how are you finance yes. doing? Maybe then we realize that one of the wife, you know, the wife is sick, so she hasn't been able, so there's one income less, or whatever it is. But early warnings are extremely important. And the reason why all these health insurance companies were extremely uh, you know, interested in, in participating is because they realized themselves that, you know, the families and their physical health start going down when stress, because they start getting, you know, less healthy lives and all that that entails. So it is extremely important that we look just beyond mm-hmm. the financial service providers. To be honest with you, here in the Netherlands, where we get into these families and they have, you know, big debts, they have 14 different creditors in which only one of them is a financial service institution. Mm. So, so definitely we have to look much broader. But let's start by focusing because the work is so big right now. <laughs> so, and also, you know, because the financial sector providers um, are just so important in certain things that would actually increase uh, their financial health of families, like increasing your insurance, increasing your savings, managing your cash, you know, helping, you know, with a nap to actually come up with early warnings. Be careful. If you're spending too much, you still have your fixed costs. And you have to sleep. So there's so much that we could be doing on that front. So I hope there to, uh, to have a lot of these type of companies engaged in the future. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Not only do they have a special responsibility, but also in a way as the plumbing, they're a little bit the glue 
amongst all of these other sectors. They're the one sector that works with all the other sectors. So ultimately, ultimately, I think that they will be an interesting pathway um, into those other sectors. Let's talk about women for a second. I know it's a subject you're also quite passionate about. You've been a champion of the rights and well-being of women around the world. Um, in the United States, we see a distinct disparity. So our own Pulse Financial Health Trends Report found that only 26% of women are considered financially healthy compared to 43% of men. This is a stark reality for us, but the fact is many countries around the world have an even wider gender gap. So what are you seeing that really works to improve the financial health outcomes for women? Well, start with, I mean, I always say you start with education. Yeah. So there's there's a very big element that, you know, uh, financial literacy we see that that is you know uh, lower among women in general and uh, it, it it's different for countries it's a very big generalization but um this is an issue that we need to focus a lot more so sort of the financial literacy of women and girls need to be uh, i mean strengthening overall also for men but you know definitely for women number two it is of course about the economic independence of women so, you know, not a lot of women are economically independent. So therefore, they are going to have much stricter financial lives. And third, they are less well served by the financial sector sometimes. You know, they, they bank differently. They, they, uh, they, they ask for credits differently. I mean, we realize, for example, in the Netherlands, that only one third of the SME credits, uh, um, only one third of the SME credits actually go to women. So there is a huge pent-up demand. A lot of women do not get the credit they need because they do, they, do, they see businesses in a different light than men do. So having sort of more women vision, of, I want to say friendly, but, you know, with the perspective of women is extremely important. But I think those three issues are the biggest issues. So it's not only financial inclusion that will do the job. Yeah, I agree. So there are no shortage of challenges facing society today. We've talked a lot about COVID. We've even mentioned climate change. There's political and economic uncertainty around the world and more. Given the moment that we're living in now, why should policymakers, business leaders, and innovators be putting financial health at the top of their agendas? Uh, uh, make, make your best argument, Your Majesty. <laughs> well, because financial inclusion is one of the infrastructure pieces that you need to achieve all of these or address all of these challenges. If we're speaking about inequality, I already explained. If we're speaking about climate change, uh, of course, we need to do humongous uh, investments for adaptation and mitigation. But also, what about this, the, the households? How are they going to be protected? against shocks in the climate change. Again, when the typhoon comes, I mean, the biggest issue is going to be the, the human cost. How do we help these people to actually have less economic cost? And that will be with financial, through financial inclusion. And that we know already that if you have less inequality and that you have better financial healthy lives, you have more stability in general, not only macroeconomically, but also socially. And that's, I think, something that that that's a reason why I'm doing this work. Are you 
hopeful in this moment, given what's going on around the world? Do you feel like it's been a wake up call or does it just feel like the problem is bigger than ever? Well, I think that the surge in the pandemic has left us, uh, you know, all the little ruptures we had in society just made it bigger. So I think the more urgency now to do the work that we need to do. And what makes me hopeful is I do hear a lot of phone calls saying, you know, well, well, you've been talking about this issue. Now we really have to get it done. Because, and it's not a complicated something. It's not that complicated. We have to just get our act together and cooperate, you know, within the public sector and also with the private sector. So, um, yes, I'm hopeful because I see a lot of people that are wanting to make a change and, uh, and because they realize that, you know, we have to get our act together and we have to make change. Mm. Your Majesty, thank you so much for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you very much for having me. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs, custom tailored for your situation and your team, to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at alloylabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. Alloylabs.com. So today I am excited to have uh, Mike Bechtel with us. And Mike is the chief futurist at Deloitte, one of the largest accounting and professional service firms in the world. Um, he is also a professor at the University of Notre Dame teaching corporate innovation. He's a co-founder and managing partner of Ringleader Ventures, a venture capital firm investing in software startups. And before all that, Mike was the chief technology officer at Start Early, a nonprofit committed to providing quality early childhood experiences in the first five years of life. So, Mike, I got to start out because I love the concept of having the title of a futurist. But where did your interest and curiosity in kind of assuming that role come from? <laughs> well, you know, I have to tell you, David, that title serves as a very useful barometer because you find yeah. that people either lean in or they lean back, cross their arms and say, what, what, what's this guy going to be going on about? But, you know, for me, it, it, it really started early in my career. You know, I was a liberal arts guy uh, with, with a creative disposition in college. But because I graduated into 1998, you know, if you could spell WWW, you were handed a laptop and told, go build the future. Okay. And and so despite my being a consultant for the first 12 years and the last four years of my career, I, I always thought of myself as a bit more of a of a, a creative, a bit more of a pioneer. And so having found my tribe, if you will, in the in the, the the emerging technology groups, the research and development groups, the inventors, the 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 change makers, as opposed to the order takers, I, I think I, I realized that I'd been working in all things newfangled for twenty five years, and 
a natural next step was to professionalize that and do it for a living as a, as a futurist. So that's fantastic. So I'm one of those that lean into that conversation because I, that I feel like that's my tribe. Um, <laughs> and I, I heard you describe the future one time as, as translucent. And that always is kind of like ring the bell in my head because a lot of times when I'm looking at strategy and so forth for the bank, I'm like, you know, the direction is clear. The compass is this way and I can kind of paint some pictures, but it's not a photograph. And so when you think of translucent, uh, what does that sound like to you? Yeah, no, for sure, David. You know, when you talk about futures studies, the first thing people understandably uh, conjure up in their, in their mind's eye is, is the crystal ball prediction. This, not that. Um, it, Babe Ruth pointing towards where the ball will be. And, 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 and the, the good thing about that is if you get it right, you get undue adulation. Exactly. You're a genius, right? Yeah. But if you get it wrong, it's, it's a never-ending game of gotcha. And so when we say the future is translucent, what we mean and, you know, get nerd alert, get ready for vocab, vocab barrage. But you skeptics will tell you the future is opaque, right? They'll say, well, you can't know it. Any time on it is folly. We've got, we've got problems today. Uh, on the flip side, you've got wide-eyed optimists who say the future is clear. Well, we believe translucent is the right word rather than transparent because what we're saying is you can make out the shapes and shadows, but not the fine details. And how? Well, David, pro tip, futurists are just secretly historians. And so we look back to make sense of where we've been, the journey to current, and then we don't project one future. We don't call one shot. We say evidence suggests it's going to be one of these two or three probable futures. Let's overweight our investments in those directions. Got it. And so is there a combo here? Um, is there science and maybe a little bit of crystal ball art? I mean, you do this long enough. You're like, hey, the data suggests this and the data suggests that. But you know what? The data has suggested that before, but we know it kind of goes sideways, not straight. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely... There's definitely um, models, rubrics, frameworks, science involved. But to your point, some of it is pattern recognition and lived experience. Yeah. You know, the best thing is to be a student of history to see where, where things have been so that we can project where they might go. The second best thing is, is to, you know, not that we need to bring age into is, is, is a discriminating characteristic, yeah, but a little gray hair goes a long way. Right. I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. Breathless excitement over the last three months about the metaverse. Oh well, yes, of course. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, if you're a digital native born into the mobile web, and suddenly the world is going beyond this glowing sixteen by nine rectangle, yep. it feels like a revolution, uh, a step change of of not just degree but of kind. Well. For those of us who are as much geezer as geek, you know, I, we've seen this movie before. I hear the clumsy exposition around the metaverse, and I think back to 1996, right, when folks were saying, well, why, why would an accountancy need one of these interweb sites? Right. 
It was funny. I was having a conversation with my daughter who like, you know, all things are Reddit and YouTube and whatever else. And, yeah. and you know, I listened to this podcast, therefore I'm a professional. And, uh, <laughs> and she's a super smart <laughs> uh, woman. Um, but I was explaining to her, you know, there's data and then there's information and then there's knowledge, but then there's wisdom, which is, uh, the future. It is time irrelevant. And so I was trying to give her some perspective of, you know, you're learning a lot of things, but you just don't know it all yet, even though you're very bright and very smart. And so it, it's that perspective. For sure. Um, now, if I was in your class at the University of Notre Dame, what, what would I expect? What are the themes of what I would be thinking about when I'm, I'm talking about corporate innovation? <laughs> I'm just absolutely curious about this and would love to yeah. attend. Yeah, no, I'll I'll tell you um the 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 low-hanging fruit, the 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 joke I'll make about myself is that, you know, corporate innovation is an oxymoron. You know, like jumbo shrimp. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but but here's here's the the straight scoop on that one. Our university, my my alma mater, um you know, you know the old joke, how, how do you know somebody went to Notre Dame? They'll tell you in the first 10 minutes. Uh-huh. But yeah. But we have a graduate program we call esteem and it's a play on words. It's a mashup of E for entrepreneurship. And then the, the STEM in esteem is STEM, right? Yep. And so what's that mean? Well, in plain English, we teach, uh, young adults. It's a graduate program who, who generally, well, not just young adults, all adults who, who are looking to infuse a little entrepreneurial mojo into their STEM undergraduate base. So, you know, I use geek as a word to be celebrated. So we're, we're, we're turbocharging geeks with a little bit of entrepreneurial savvy, right? Love it. Yeah. Well, what we learned, David, was as much sound and fury is spent teaching the rules of the road around entrepreneurship, around startups, around uh, grassroots uh, business founding, there's a whole world of innovators working in large established organizations yeah that that feel that feel like they can lean on some of the tropes of silicon yep. valley but not all of them sure. right it, as as one of my headlines in that class is disruptive innovation move fast and break things yep. doesn't work in a 100 year old firm that's paying your salary right you need to approach that constructively Right. Yep. With respect for the best practices that got us to current and the pioneering spirit to explore whether or not there might be better ones. And so a lot of that class, what, what do you learn? You learn how to you learn how to pull the organization forward without disrespecting it or breaking the cash cow in the process. Exactly. Beautiful. And that is such a lovely and fine line. I call them the the entrepreneurs of, of our company because they're always looking to that continuous improvement and so forth. And some of them are very bold and forward with it. We got to do this. And others are, you know, if we tried it this way and they totally <laughs> set you up for the sale and you're like, well, why wouldn't we do that? Um, so, That's yes, it. there there is quite a bit of art there. Yeah. Um now, I got to just go back to one thing that you triggered in my head because it, it came off another uh, interview that I think was on YouTube of you. And I think I've used it three times now in the past 48 hours. <laughs> and that is you had a, uh, the definitions between um, invention and innovation. 
And to me, that just lit my brain up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is what I've been trying to describe to people for so long. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna hand that one over on a dish because I want to see if I'm I interpreted it correctly. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm grateful I, with with sincerity, man. I, I'm grateful for the time you spent. Uh, you know, pr preparing and, and thinking about our talk because I, I, uh, it, it, it means the world. And I think it's a great reflection on your, your passion for the space. Oh, I'm just a student in this journey. Hey, uh, well, <laughs> I got a graduate degree. It's from the school of hard knocks more than anything else. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, so, so here, if it's the definition, I think you're talking about, okay. I, there's a great story behind this. And, oh. and that is 15 years ago, I was asked to serve as my my former firm's uh, first uh, global innovation director, and with the with the insecurity and youth that comes with having a title like that at the ripe old age of thirty, I did what any self respecting motor mouth would do, and created about a thirty page definition for innovation because clearly it couldn't be simple. You know, it, right. it, it, it needed to be, you know, appendices until the cows come home. Right. Well, what I learned over the ensuing years was that, um, the best definitions, the best frames are always simple. doesn't mean they're simplistic. It means they're clear. And the story is I'm looking online for simple, pithy descriptions and I see on Wikipedia and it's no longer there, right? Okay. And, you know, high school teachers everywhere are doing the Kermit the Frog wrinkle face like that's not a reputable source. Well, it's useful. Right. And I saw an IP address from Cincinnati, Ohio. I'll never knew who the genius was who wrote this, but they said, invention is the conversion of money into new ideas. Innovation is the conversion of new ideas into money. And I just thought, oh my goodness, isn't that it? Because the yep. lab coat crowd obsesses over novelty. Look at this new thing I made. Can I get a grant for it? Right. <laughs> the entrepreneur crowd says, look at this new way to create value for others, financial, social, or beyond. And it's so applicable in my world when it comes to uh, and a lot of times we run into technology and we run into people with new ideas. And again, what they're building this thing and people are going to come. And if I could just get the funding for it and, and build it a little bit more and I'll build it a little bit more and they keep building and building, um, they're inventing this thing. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to, I, I look at someone in the innovative world and they're like, I have this big juicy problem and it's been weighing me down, but I finally got to the point where I felt confident enough to come up with the solutions that take the problem apart. And I figured it out and I'm now in the clarity zone. I'm like, yeah, baby, this is what we got. We're going. I'll, I'll tell you what, David, one of the number one things that I've learned in my own hard knock journey through innovation land is that too often, even innovators, they start with the hammer and then go searching for nails and yeah. the, the time honored, the time honored, you know, approach, the time honored best practice to use a, a nerd word, you got to lead with need, 
right? There's, you know, cliches are cliches for a reason. And one of them is that necessity is the mother of invention. And we hear that in sixth grade and then promptly forget it for the rest of our life. But that's it. The winning startups, the winning corporates, the winning banks, the winning social enterprises, see a need, fill a need. Don't start with shiny bling. Don't start with eyeballs and you know, customer acquisition costs to lifetime value metrics and all these other echoes and shadows start with an itch worth scratching. Yep. Then you're going to be cooking with gas. Absolutely. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a a turn on you here. We'll go to financial services. And so now banking, uh, financial services in general, banking, especially it's being disrupted by small tech and big tech alike by the minute. I used to say by the day, but that's not even accurate anymore. And I would say a lot of banks are in in a position like we are, and we're focused on our nuts and bolts. We got to do a core migration. We got to go to the cloud. We got to do some data stuff. Um, And there's a lot of data stuff to do. And it's all in a quest of, I got to lower my cost of tech now because I got to invest in new tech but quite frankly, I still have to drive the car while I'm changing the wheels. Yeah. And it ain't all that easy. What do you see next? Uh, while I'm, well, we're busy doing that. Someone's got to look out the windshield and say, you know, don't crash into this or don't go the wrong way. Yeah. What do you see as next on that technology frontier? So I'll tell you, you, you I love your characterization and I, I might borrow that. Several times the next 48 hours <laughs> around, around the, the car. Cause, cause you're right. You're, you're racing at 200 miles an hour and you got to do the gas, the, no pit stops, right? No nope. pit stops. No pit stops. <laughs> the, the way we encourage our clients to think about it. And, and I think the way that, that I've seen work at organizations, small, medium and jumbo is you want to allocate you want to hard circle some percentage of your budgets and your time and your team to wake up in the morning thinking about the implementation of the new and the exploration of the next. The key is you don't drop what you're doing. You don't give up on your you know, rusty but trusty core you keep the majority and by majority i'm talking 75 85% of your budget and your mind share is on nurturing the now but the key is you know there's that old quote what strat you know operations eat strategy for breakfast they both eat innovation for lunch right i, I saw another quote best way to make sure something doesn't happen is to make it everybody's part time job right? right and so by 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 forcing yourself the accountability of hard circling some people, some dollars around the exploration of what's new, you know, yet another trope, the electric light didn't come from the continuous improvement of candles. Right. right? And so as long as you have the tungsten filament crowd, you're the bird dogging the future. That's the first step. Now you asked what's common. The, the, the way, the way we look at it, honestly, we don't look at it as a, as a, as, as a blizzard of a la carte unrelated buzzwords. Too often, I think technologists, uh, you know, they, 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 you know, put, put, put up the sparkle fingers as my old uh, business partner used to say, <laughs> and hit you with 650 buzzwords and worse. There's another 650 behind those. Right. 
<laughs> totally have heard those before. Oh yeah, right. I mean, yeah, yeah. absolutely. The, the in truth, our research suggests that the whole honking history of IT, and when I say history, I mean back to the 1840s. It's really been a, a pretty linear evolution along three train tracks. Okay. They are, and, and for the nerds and wizards in your audience, and again, that's a compliment for me. That, the, that is my tribe as well. <laughs> yeah. The, it's, it's the user interface, right? The UI, UX, the interaction, how we interact with machines. Yeah. There's the information layer right? What we do with that, as you said, that knowledge, that information uh, come wisdom, right? And then underneath it all, the computation, how we, how we crunch numbers. And for the last five-ish years, the story on, on those three have been about mobility and, you know, touch and swipe mobile digital experiences on interaction. It's been about analytics, and data science uh, coming into AI on information, it's been about, well, it's been about the cloud on right. computation. Sure. What's next, finally, only took me 17 minutes, but what's <laughs> next on all three, it's, well, on interaction, David, it's getting beyond the glass. It's this recognition, man, that these this ever-shrinking series of rectangles that we've been staring at and that my kids have been lost in for the last, you know, 10 years. Yep. The one thing we know is they ain't going to get smaller. Now you get smaller than a smartwatch. Right. And so what's really next on the interaction front is beyond the glass. It's conversational voice. A couple of years ago, we thought smart speakers would be a fad. Tell that to my 12 year old who sees that as the most natural and simple computing interface. Absolutely. Yep. On the information front, what's next is emotional, charismatic, even creative AI. And I'll tell you, yeah, it, and it's it. Here's the thing, David. AI. This fellow Larry Tesler from Xerox Park. Okay, he invented uh, um, copy paste, which oh, I did, sure. It, I think that's a low-key candidate for the most useful thing ever. But, <laughs> totally. I mean, you know, dark horse. Yeah. But he had the best definition of AI I ever saw. He said, AI is whatever the heck computers can't do yet. And so in 1996, that meant beating Kasparov in chess. Right. You know, in 2006, it's beating Ken Jennings in Jeopardy. In 2017, it's beating Lee Sedol in Go. The thing is this, and here, here's the punchline here on uh, – we doubt every time AI threatens to do something uniquely human, we doubt that it'll happen. Never happen. And then right. when it does, it's interesting. The next morning we shrug it off. It's not really AI. Right. <laughs> it's because we have this pride of place as people. We want to create amazing things, but not greater than us. If we can get over ourselves, yep. I'll tell you, we can more readily accept that AI can detect and emulate human emotion because it's another form of data. Right. And we're seeing it at our clients, call centers, right? These robots don't mean, need to be more charming than a Hollywood actor. They need to more, be more charming than your lowest performing rep. Gotcha. And so, you know, the final piece landing the plane is what, what's new on, on compute. It's all this blockchain stuff, man. Right. 
and and blockchain had such an image problem 10 years ago dark actors on the dark web right but but what we're finding is this emerging belief that none of us maybe is as trustworthy as all of us right and so what is decentralized computing if not the democratization of trust and and the recognition that no one counterparty should hold all the eggs in our baskets right that doesn't speak very well for intermediaries like a bank. <laughs> no. But but you're right. The well, I would agree yeah, with agree. you. The the trust and the zero trust model are um uh I mean we talk about it all the time. We have a zero trust model, so therefore we can function essentially in terms of authentication. Um oh, it's true. And, yeah. and 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 another thing though that I think that that you have with Sunrise, and and I don't I don't intend to uh, butter you up nor preach to the choir yeah. or the converted, but, but I think it puts, it puts your mission, your, your B Corp status, your in it, you know, in it for a broader set of reasons to the fore, because regardless of where the trust discussion goes or the technical discussion goes, we're seeing as futurists, this trend towards people affiliating with expressions of their value systems. And sure. so regardless of how central or decentralized banking becomes, um, you have other levers to sort of attract and retain a community that cares. Right. No, thank you for that. And that is, uh, that is the hope. Let me uh, just take off on that real quick, because in a lot of the AI conversations that I have, uh, I seem to be in the minority because they're like, AI can get, AI needs grandparents. It's being weaponized. It's doing all this. I'm like, you know, I think AI could be used for some good. Like we could discover people that don't have access or we could think of underwriting in a different way or risk in a different way, or we could, we could start to take in different forms of data and patterns that we can't even comprehend and, and begin to open up this magical thing called, you know, financial services in the and the fear that's around money. And um, my question is, is there a force for good here? Is there AI for good? There is absolutely AI for good. David, I love this. I love this, um, this question in this space because in my experience, media, whether it be creative media or, or journalistic, yeah. It follows this this age old trope of if if it bleeds it leads, and so in a world where we 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 quest for eyeballs and outrage sells, we tend to get the dark mirror, right, on just about everything. Well, AI. We know that the naive state is that AI makes existing processes faster. It automates. It accelerates, and as my colleague. And our CTO at, at Deloitte, Bill, likes to say, you know, good does not come from making bad things faster. Uh, well, right. <laughs> well, here's, but here's the scoop. Therefore, in emerging AI ethics, um, sort of a point of view, uh, way of thinking has emerged, which is out to ensure that we do no harm. A sort of Hippocratic oath of IT teach your digital children well. I love the way you said it, AI needs grandparents. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think we can do one step better. And I think you're foreshadowing that, David. Namely, 
imagine a world where the use of AI doubles as a hygiene function. It forces organizations to say, what are the tacit values, social, ethical, moral beliefs that we know we feel, but we haven't yet made explicit, that we haven't yet articulated, that we haven't made legible. Let's surface those in a way that's machine readable and therefore AI trainable. And then to your point, let's let's build and train systems that embody who we wish to be, not who we've behaved as for the last 50 or 500 years. You know, we use this term as, as entrepreneurs, as, as leaders, uh, this term externalities. Right. This idea that there's the things in our sphere, scope of control, and then there's the other stuff. Well, right. imagine, imagine that thinking applied to data, right? Traditionally, AI and ML is trained on what? Business data. What kind of business data would we typically have? Financial data. Okay, we can train a mechanical mind to optimize financial outcomes. Sure. Not so fast, my friend. What we're what we're suggesting, what we're concocting together, is a future wherein, by exposing these same algorithms to our social values, right. to our moral, aspirational, ethical uh, values, we can optimize across the the whole enchilada, yep. and and seek to optimize externalities uh, because there's no such thing. Right. Wow. Cool. So, Mike, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you down here to the the final question, and it's the next gen banker question. So, you know, as you look out into your into that future, knowing what you know of the past, what does the next generation of banker look like? That's a fun one because it it, it is as a, as a breadth guy. I, 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 I treat, I, you know, I look at opportunities to jump into any given sector as, as a, <laughs> as a treat, you know, right. it's, it's, it's a chance to, uh, it's a, it's a chance to feign sector specific, uh, guru-ness, but here's what I'd say, David, back to lead with need. Okay. It might feel a bit cliched, but I think the banker of the future, if it's going to be like everything else of the future that we're seeing in our research the banker of the future leads with need. And leading with need is increasingly a data-driven understanding of not just who is your customer and where is, for example, in, in your sector, what, what is their net worth, their free cash flow, et cetera, but where have they been? Where are they at? Where do they aspire to be? And so I think the, the next-gen banker has a data-driven understanding of every single customer's past, present, future trajectory as modeled in data so that you can offer, and I'm going to purposely use video game language here, but it feels okay. right. You can <laughs> offer unlocks and achievements and shortcuts to these customers' preferred tomorrows and you'll notice nowhere in there is, are there notions of interest rates or loans or, you know, anything. Yeah. It's we're here to help you get to your preferred tomorrow a little ahead of schedule. Right. The way you happen to do it is through financial systems and engineering. Yeah. We spend so much time, particularly as bankers, if we could just lower the rate. If it's, all, it's usually all about us as opposed to, you know, I know they want a car loan, but they really don't want a car loan. They, they want a car. 
Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today on The Next Gen Banker. I appreciate your insights and, and all your, gosh, your creativity that you bring to this space. It is really fantastic. I wish you all the best, and I hope our paths uh, run across each other again. You can find both Emerge Everywhere and The Next Gen Banker wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can listen and learn more about those and other great shows, including Tech on Reg with Dara Tarkowski, the Finnovate podcast with Greg Palmer, Breaking Banks Europe with Matteo Rizzi and the team, all on our website at provoke.fm. And keep an eye out for our newest show, The Futurists, with Brett King and Robert Tursek, coming soon. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks. <laughs>